Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, Twin Cities Church. If you are visiting with us this morning, glad that, that you're with us here. Join me in prayer as we get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good and deserving of our praise. Lord, we thank you. More than thank you, Lord, we worship you. We worship you for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, we thank you for securing the victory for your promise to come again, for the hope that we have that all things will be made new. Lord, we thank you for the work that you did on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the work and the resurrection and the hope that we have now in you. Lord, help us. Lord, help us in our weakness to turn to you. Help us, Lord, to know and understand how great is your love for us. Lord, help us to really get a hold of who you are and what that means for us. Lord, help us to live lives that are obedient to you. Um, Lord, help us just truly to know you. Lord, be with us this morning. Open our heart and our mind to your word. Lord, we want you to call us. And Lord, we want to be faithful to answer that call that you've placed in our life. Uh, So Lord, please give us wisdom and clarity. Give us an openness and an eagerness to love you and to love each other. Uh, Lord, just be with us. In your name, amen. Well, we are we're wrapping up the, our series here on the Sermon on the Mount. We really just have a few more weeks left uh, within Mark and in Matthew. So if you have been with us for a while, you've noticed that George and I have been going back and forth each week. And George had been preaching out of the book of Mark, talking through the life of Jesus and what that points to. And I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew, giving a picture, right, trying to get an idea of what it is, this life that Christ has purchased for us, called us into. What does it look like to live in this kingdom under this king? And as we wrap this up, right, the Sermon on the Mount seems very appropriate and very fitting in a lot of ways, especially for what's been going on. You know, if you think about this last week, you know, post-election week, it's been a crazy several days I'm sure that many of you have felt a lot of the burden of it all. You know, for many, I think regardless of where you stood in terms of the outcome of the election, you're a little tired, you're a little frazzled, you're a little hurt, or or not knowing exactly what to do. Many people, right, we witness many people rejoice, we've witnessed many people uh, weep in, in and amongst our midst, even in our house churches, our church, our families. There's been lots of talk about Jesus. You know, anytime I go on social media, there's a lot of talking about Jesus. There's a lot of talking about Jesus on both sides of the political issues, and the both of and a lot of judging on both sides of the political issues. And if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, I can't believe you voted for whichever candidate. But and then a lot of hurt and pain over those judgments. And for many, right, there's a tremendous loss of credibility for the church in all of this. I've had many conversations through the week with skeptics or those who are on the fence who now say, right, oh, I can never be part of anything that was part of that. And, oh, all right. <laughs> I get that feeling. I get that pain. The church has been losing its credibility for a long time. This isn't anything new. Anytime there's been positions of power that the church could kind of sell its birthright to, we have been eager to do it to try to gain whatever semblance of control we can. 
So this past week, this past week, but it's really been more than just this week, if we're honest with ourselves. This past week, things have kind of come up and boiled to a head, but these things have been going on for a long time, right? You could just say the whole political process, the whole election season has brought these same worries and fears and judgments out. You could say really just the last several few decades of American politics have brought this up, but even that's too short-sighted. Really, when you just look at the history of the church and the state, oh, the cycle continues and continues and continues. And it really reveals a lot. It reveals a lot about us. It reveals a lot about our culture. It reveals a lot of truths about the church. And Jesus' words for us today at the end here of the Sermon on the Mount are very fitting. So if you have, if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we will go through it on the screen, but it's always nice to, at least for me, to have a text in front of me. But we will have it up, on, up here as well. We're right here, we're at, the, we're at the very end. These are the last words of Christ in this, very, in this famous sermon on the mount. He had just told us, he had just told his disciples in the crowd, right, that few, few are going to follow him. It's not going to be many. It's going to be incredibly difficult, and few are going to find this life. Few will enter into the kingdom. And then here in verse 24, he starts by saying, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. There are a few things, right, that reveal probably more about us and about our lives than our fears. What are you afraid of losing? Right, what are you afraid will get damaged in the storms of life or in the storm that goes around you? What would cause you to lose hope? What if you lost it would just be devastating? Carl Jung, a very famous philosopher and, and psychologist, he wrote that, right, if you ask people what they love, they'll lie to you. They'll tell you all the right things or the things that they think you'll say to them. If you ask, you know, what do you love? Oh, I love my family. I love good things, all those things. But if you ask them what they're afraid of, you'll really find out what they love. If you really ask them what they're the most afraid of losing, right, what their greatest nightmare is, that's where you find out where people's hearts are. That's where you find out what people have been building, where people have been investing, where they have been laying their treasures, where their hopes are put. When you lose it, or you think you're going to lose it, it reveals to you where you've been putting all of your hope. And we're all putting hope in things, right? Like we all have these nightmares. We all have these fears, and they're legitimate and worrying fears that we may lose things because all of us are building. You know, Jesus uses this analogy of building a house and that it speaks to us because that's what we're doing for ourselves. All of us are building things. 
You may be at the stage of life where you are trying very hard to build a career for yourself. You may be trying to build a family for yourself. You may be working hard to build a portfolio, a retirement account, I mean, something to hold on to. In a lot of ways, many of us have been laboring and working to build a better society, better communities, better neighborhoods, a better nation, a better church. We're all working very hard at building something. Right? None of us are just passively sitting and going through life, not trying to make something of ourselves, not trying to make something with our hands, not trying to build up for ourselves something that'll last. Right? When storms come, it really does reveal a lot about our fears and our worries. Because when these things are threatened, right, whatever it is that you have been working so hard on, when it gets threatened, we react. We react violently at times. We get upset. We get defensive. We lash out or we just hold tightly. I mean, we, we react very strongly when our idols or these things in our life that we love so dearly get threatened. That's a very normal reaction. It's a human reaction. It reflects our hearts. It reflects the treasure. It certainly reflects right, our current culture, when you just look at the backlash and the fears and the anger and the rejoicing, woo, right, it, that reflects a lot of what people hope for. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to react in those moments. It's not wrong to react to the threats, to the thought of losing things that we care about, that we have labored for. It's not a wrong reaction. It's a normal reaction. It's a human reaction. It's not wrong to grieve at the loss of things or the perceived loss of things or the legitimate loss of things. It's not wrong to rejoice when we get the things that we've been laboring for. It's not wrong to rejoice in those things. The reality, though, is that they're very short-lived things. <laughs> Either position if you're in a position of weeping or if you're in a position of rejoicing, they're short-lived. You know this, right? You work and you work to build something and then you lose it and we weep and then we just build again. Our hopes shift. Or we rejoice and that rejoicing will not last and we will find something else to weep over. They're very short-lived. Everything ultimately gets washed away in this storm of life or the things that, that fall on us. This is this is just the teaching of the wisdom literature in the Bible. The Bible is pretty consistent with that message all the way through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. This idea of, look, everything you do in your life is ultimately meaningless and will wash away, right? I mean, like, whatever career, no matter how great and hard you work and no matter what you accomplish, right, you won't be remembered. You can't take it with you. All of your work will be enjoyed by somebody else one day. All of the knowledge that you're inquiring, all of the good that you're doing, everything that we're after... It's very short-lived. There are seasons. There are time for everything. There's time for rejoicing. There's time for weeping. There's time for harvesting. Time for planting. I mean, ultimately, that's life. It's very short-lived. So enjoy the life that you have now. That's, that's the wisdom. And Christ points us to something different, though. Right? Christ points us as a good teacher, and his teaching here in the, in the Sermon on the Mount has been so good. It hasn't really been original, but it's good because it gives us the hope that there could be something that we could build 
there could be something that would stand, that would never be washed away, that there would be a hope that would never disappoint us, that there would be one house that would stand forever, that no storm could batter, that no storm could wash away. And Jesus' instructions here at the end are so direct and so clear to us. Do what I said, and you will be in this house. It's startling, in fact, at just how direct Jesus can speak. Very few teachers have ever been this direct or ever will be this direct. Here's what I've told you. Now do it. Don't we need to talk about this? <laughs> Shouldn't I think about how this is going to look in my life? Don't I need to go home and kind of talk it over with my parents or my family? Right? He's just so direct. And that's the way he is with everything, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but if you know the, the life of Jesus and how he acts and how he reacts to people when they, you know, I want to follow you. He says, great, follow me. Well, my dad just died. Let me, you know, bury him. Nope. Are you going to follow me or are you not? If you are, then follow me. He's just incredibly direct and cold. And you're, yes, I want to follow you, but I've got legitimate things that are preventing me from doing it today. I'll do it. I mean, I want to. I just want to be on the record saying I want to follow you. <laughs> he's just very, very direct. And he's so direct here, and it just amazes and marvels the, the crowd, right? He just assumes that they will follow him, that they will follow what he's given, this life. It's not just advice. It's not just another system. In fact, Jesus, Jesus just gives no other option. You've heard it. Now you will do it or you won't. You will either live in my kingdom or you will not. Which do you want? So it causes us to stop for a minute, right? These types of direct statements of Jesus. We have to stop. We have to pause. What does it mean to follow these words? What have they, in fact, heard? What have we heard? When we're confronted with Jesus. What is it that he is actually calling us to? What has he called them to? What has he told them that they need to now follow? We've been called, they've been called, to live in the kingdom of God. That's been the good news of the gospel. The king, the one we've been waiting for, the true ruler of this world, the one king that we have been desperate for, that all other worldly, earthly kings have fallen far short of, but point us to him, has come. It turned out to be a carpenter. This true king turned out to come from a very low class, had no place for his, for his head. He's homeless. He's weak. He's our king. He shows up in history and says, I'm the king, and everybody has access in my kingdom. It doesn't matter if you are powerful and wealthy and rich in this world. It doesn't matter if you are poor and you are destitute in this world. All have access to this new kingdom that you can choose to live in a kingdom and a life of radical love and peace. This countercultural community. He said we'll be small, this band of brothers and sisters that will bind together in love and commitment that will honor its king. This is it. We've been told to love and to live like Jesus, which means two things. Right, Jesus has said, and it's been really clear, we're supposed to love God. Do what I've said. Love God. 
We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to love the same God who came to earth and who reconciled all things to himself. We're supposed to love this God who has reconciled and made peace through the blood of his cross. We're to love him. We're supposed to love this God who first loved us. We're supposed to love this God who brought his kingdom to us rather than called us to come to him. We're supposed to love this God who opened it up to everybody, who freely gave himself for us, who lived the life that we were meant to live, but died for the life that we actually live. We're supposed to love him. We're supposed to trust him. We're supposed to rest in him. Love God. The other commandment, the other law, the other piece to this life in the kingdom Beyond this loving and trusting and resting in God is we are to love our neighbor. We're to love the one whom Christ has redeemed and reconciled to himself and back to us. We are to identify with them, no matter their state, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their legal status, no matter anything, we identify with our neighbors. We're to wish the best for them even when they wish the worst for us. We are to pray for them, even when they curse us. We are to bless them, even when they take away everything from us. We are to protect and care for the ones who are actually hurting us and oppressing us. This radical love, completely upside-down kingdom, that this carpenter presents to us, saying, I give you a kingdom in which there is love, genuine love. You can experience what it is to love, you can be loved, you can love God, and you can love your neighbor. And that's it. That's the command. We will either believe Jesus is who he said he is, and we will follow him in obedience, or we will not. That's how the sermon ends. Do you believe I am who I said I am? Will you follow me? But not everybody will. Jesus gets it. Not everybody wants that kingdom. Do you want this kingdom or do you not? Will you walk in this or will you not? Will we live in his kingdom under his good kingly rule or will we live in this empire around us under our own kings and under ourselves? It has to be one or the other, Jesus says. And while Jesus gives us this just starkness, this honesty to Jesus, right? Follow me or don't. Our experience is not that. Right? The experience of modern Christianity has been far from it. There hasn't been a lot of honesty. There hasn't been a lot of honesty in our life. There hasn't been a lot of honesty in the church. There hasn't been a lot of honesty when it comes to who Jesus is. Because the issue is, right, we, we are in neither of those two extremes most of the time, either following Jesus and believing in, in obedience or just not. Rather, we try to do one of two, right? We either believe in Jesus and don't obey him, or we just obey him without believing in him. And it leads to our ruin, right? We can believe in Jesus and not obey him. And this is such an easy 
route and such a cancer to our lives and to the church and to our witness, right? Talk about the undermining, but both, both have undermined the credibility of the Christian church. Where we cling to faith in Christ, we cling to the forgiveness of sin, which isn't wrong, but then we rationalize away any difficult teachings or commandments or anything like that. They say, thank God that Jesus has saved me. Now I can live like everybody else. Thank goodness that he's reconciled my sin. Now I can store up all my treasures knowing that he's reconciled it. We believe that Jesus died for us to forgive us, and then we live like we want. We freely forgive ourselves. I just freely apply the forgiveness of Christ to myself and continue in sin knowing that I've been forgiven. And rarely, though, right? But the reality is I quickly forgive myself, and I rarely forgive others. But I'm quick to forgive me. Where we value freedom and independence over obedience and submission. We say obedience and submission, that is, those are bad words. Those are, Christ would never call us to something like that. He wants us to be free. He died so we could be free. I don't need to obey. I don't need to follow. I don't need to submit. I can, he's forgiven me. Or we slip into the other side and we just obey him, right? We just obey without actually believing in him. We live the life that we think God wants. We live the life that we think the Bible wants. We live the life that Christ presented, right? We do what he said. Like, I get it, Jesus. I will do these things. If this is what Jesus says, well, then I want to be the one who does it. Right? When you hear those words, like, few will enter the kingdom. All right, I got it. I'm going to be one of those few. I, will, I love to please my authority. I will blindly submit. I will blindly obey. I will do whatever God wants of me, and I will just follow him. So we live this life we think God wants, trying Desperately to prove our worth, trying to prove our worth to God, trying to prove our worth to ourself, even trying to build his kingdom here, right? Because we can hear that good news of the gospel that the king has come and his kingdom has come. And they say, right, that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's like, I've heard, I hear the gospel and then I just, all right, I'm going to tell everybody. Jesus is like, wait, no, no, no. I didn't tell you to go tell people. I told you to just stay with me as the author of your life and the sustainer of your life. I'd rather just do something, right? I want to know what to do. Give me the system. Give me the plan. We do what he says, but ultimately, we're still our own king. We do what we think God wants from us because we want what we think God will give to us. But we don't actually want him. Jesus is our boss. Jesus is our example but he's not our king. It's only when belief and obedience come together that we experience the kingdom life that Jesus offers. How can Christ speak with such authority? Follow me. Do what I've said. How can we do that? Only when our belief and obedience are working together it has to be both. There has to be both of them because true belief in Jesus as the king is only made possible when we step into obedience. 
Right? I can't genuinely, truly believe in Jesus unless I'm going to be obedient to him. Because what, what, what do I believe if I won't be obedient? Who do I think he is? Who do I think this is that called me, that told me to do something? Do I really believe in him if I will not step into obedience to him? We have to be positionally in a place where faith and belief are possible. Otherwise, we stand in a position right, of knowing the identity of the king, but we're certainly not in a position right in his kingdom. We're in a position outside of his kingdom. We're in a position of judging, a position of looking, a position of hoping, but not a position of following. Until I actually take steps when I actually act in faith, when I actually follow, when I actually do what I know is for my good and what is right, even when I know I also don't want to do these things, but I do it. Right? That's submission. That's obedience. This is what Christ does to the, with the Father. He acts in obedience. He didn't want to die on the cross. Right? It says it in the Gospels. <laughs> he does it. This is what we're called to do. Where we obey we submit, I know this is for my good. I know the one who called me, so I act in obedience. And true obedience, though, right? Because it's not just a message of just be obedient, because true obedience is only possible when it actually comes from faith, when it actually comes from belief in the one who is calling you, who is asking something of you. If there's no faith, if there's no belief in the one who is calling you to act, because you can love your neighbor, Okay, that's great, and you should, but without faith in the king who's called you to love your neighbor, you're really doing it for yourself. We're doing it for the benefits. We're going through the motions. You can try to please God. You can try to please your neighbor. You can try to please your conscience right, by doing these things. But ultimately, you're trying to get something from them. Right? We work hard. We live good lives. We love our neighbor to have a better life, to have a better neighborhood, to have a better community, to have peace for ourselves and for them. And we're after the benefits of these things. We're trying to get something from the person who has commanded us. Right? Like, Why would you just be obedient if you don't trust the person who's called you to do something. So we all fall into these categories, right? I mean, so Christ calls us to follow, and we struggle because of these issues, because of either a lack of obedience or a lack of faith. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, like, who are we? Which, is, which one is you? Right? Do you lack obedience? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you believe in Jesus, but are there areas of your life where you are very content doing it yourself, where you are very comfortable, where you don't really want to look very hard, areas of your life that you really don't want to expose to Christ, you don't really want to expose to the church, you don't really want to expose to other people, other believers, I got this, and thankfully Jesus keeps forgiving me. Because I know I'm not doing great, but I really don't want to deal with it either. But I know he's forgiven me. Are you smug and condescending? <laughs> right, especially towards people who oppose you? You know, this week was kind of revealing in that way, right, of 
when you have conversation with someone and they say those words like, I can't even understand, like, whoa, 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 right? I couldn't possibly think why, like, well, okay, that's a great indication, right? What is going on? In what ways you have all this belief in Jesus, but are you not giving over your life to him? Are you not able to actually love people? Or do you lack a belief? Do you do all the right things? <laughs> Which has been many of us, right? Just do all the right things. Have you been doing all the right things, but still suffer all kinds of worry and anxiety and fear? Do you constantly try to please people? Are you constantly trying to please God, trying to please your family, trying to please just everybody around you? Trying to hold your house together. This would be me, in case you're just wondering. <laughs> this feeling of like, I need to hold this together. Right? I can hold it together. Christ has called me to this role. All right, let's do this. I've got it. I, get, I can keep everybody around me pleased with me. I can keep everybody around me pleased with Jesus. I can keep everybody happy-ish. Not totally happy, but at least close. And I can hold this together. I can be obedient. I know it. I get it. I get what Jesus says. All right, as a husband, I need to love and cherish my wife. And as a father, I need to raise my children and not frustrate them. And Okay, I can do these things. So you do those things. But it just leads to anxiety and fear and worry. The question for us, right, Dietrich Bonhoeffer raises this in The Cost of Discipleship. Jesus' call is incredibly simple. Do we want it to be simple? Do you even want the call of Jesus to be true? Do you want it to be possible that you could just leave everything and find Jesus? Because that's why few of us will do it. I don't want to step out of my kingdom. I don't want to step out of my world where I control it all and I judge it all. Do you want the call of Jesus to be true? Do you want to be able to take a step of obedience to him? You say, I believe in you. And I will be obedient. Take me. Call me where you want. Use me for your will. Because it's a very straightforward call. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Enter into my kingdom. Cling to me. And I will teach you how to love people. Stay near me. And you will experience what it means to be loved and you will be able to love others. And these words of Christ that he's giving are not new. Right? There's nothing new being said here that we haven't heard before. Right? Maybe you haven't. If you've never read the Bible, if you've never encountered the Christian message, you may never have heard these things before. But the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is very clear. There's not a lot of mystery in the text. A lot of different settings, a lot of different authors, a lot of different places, but it's always been saying these things that Jesus is saying. Love me, love God, and love your neighbor. It's been it. Trust in God. Trust me. God has been just calling his people again and again and again in a million different ways, demonstrating his love and his faithfulness, and just saying, trust me. I got this. I have you. I know how rough it looks. I know how bad it looks. I got this. I know how good it looks. I still have this. Trust me. And love each other. 
That law is not new. It's not complicated. It's pretty straightforward. So how do we do them? Because the Bible is also a history of Israel's failure to do it. Where you hear this call again and again and again, and we fail to do it again and again and again. And we know. How do we do it? How can we have any confidence? How can we make a move from having faith in Jesus right, to having the faith of Jesus? Which is what Paul will say in Galatians. Right, that you can actually move from just having faith in Christ, which seems to be what kind of evangelicalism is completely worried about, like just do you believe in Jesus? But beyond that, not just having faith in Jesus, but having the faith of Jesus. How do I have that? How do I get a heart that's not stone anymore? How do I get the Father's will in me? How do I get this? How do I melt? Right? How do I actually get up to a place where I can love people and I can actually love God? How do we live and love in that marriage of belief and obedience? I think the text is pointing us to it. And all of scripture has been pointing us to it. It's Jesus. It's who he is. When we see who Jesus actually is, when we see whose house this really is that we are occupying, right, it changes. Do you see him as one with authority? The crowd did. This isn't just some teacher giving teaching. This isn't just some prophet. This isn't just some savior, some guy who died in your place, not some scapegoat. Who is this? Jesus. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the king. He was a man. He was a teacher. He was a savior. But this is a king. This is our king. This is the king of the universe. This is the king of all creation. This is his house. This is his world, which changes things dramatically. If I view him in that position, right, he actually, and this is what's hard to believe, I think, for us, right, but he actually cares more about the world than we do. He cares more about the poor than you do. He cares more about the refugee than you ever will. He cares more about the persecuted and the minority. He cares more about the rural and forgotten laborer. He cares more about our families. He cares more about your children than you ever will. He loves everyone in this world far more than you ever will be able to. He cares more about you than you. He owns this world. He loves this world. It's his world. It's not yours. It's not mine. I belong to him. I don't belong to myself. We are not our own. I don't get to operate. I can try. I can try to live as my own king. I can try to live in a different kingdom. It's just not true. But I can, he lets me, graciously lets me live a deluded life if I choose to and act like I have freedom, and I can do whatever I want. I belong to him. And more than that, more than just belonging to the king, he owns this world, and he died for this world. When I see him on the cross, it's not just a good king who rules with justice 
but it's a king who willingly lays down his life, who reconciles all things, who made peace, doesn't demand peace, doesn't demand us to reconcile and fix our problems, but he actually purchases our peace. And this is why we can then love. This is why I can love God, because he's loved me enough. This is why I can love others, because he's loved me enough. He's loved enough for the unlovable people in this world, for the unloving people in this world. I can love without being loved back because I'm loved enough, and they're loved enough. Whether they ever experience love, they're loved. There's enough love. There's an abundance of love. So belief and obedience for us, right? what are we called to, is going to happen when we see Jesus resurrected and sitting on his throne. That's when this clicks. This is why Jesus opens the scriptures to his disciples after the resurrection. They got the teaching, but it's when we see Jesus in glory and on his throne, it makes sense. And now, this is not to say for a minute, for a second, that we don't actually care for the poor and the needy. That's not what this is saying. Jesus sitting on his throne doesn't excuse us from living the life that he's called us to live. In fact, it's the opposite. If Jesus is truly on his throne and he really is the ruler of this world, then I care about what he cares about. What my king loves, I love. What my king hates, I hate. And I will work for those things diligently. I will care for the ones that he cares for. Absolutely. Believing and looking and seeing Jesus on the throne, it, it's not an escape. It doesn't escape you from this world. It doesn't escape you from loving people. It empowers us to love people because now I can actually love people with confidence, with certainty. My hope is not shaken. I don't have fear. I can generously live my life because I've been generously loved. I live in a kingdom in which this king is so good and has so generously poured himself out that I can pour myself out. I can follow him freely and confidently with hope that even if people don't receive my love well, even if I'm getting hatred back, I know that those things don't win. I know that evil doesn't own the day. I know that love is enduring. So are you tired? <laughs> are you having a hard time showing love? Are you having a hard time, not just this week, right, but in general, showing empathy towards your enemies? Or are you just exhausted of trying to hold everything together in your life? Jesus invites us to get off his throne. He invites us to see him for who he is, as the one who actually has authority over your life. He invites us to submit to him, to be obedient to him, to find peace, to find life in him. Because until we believe and obey Jesus as our king, because we can believe in him as our savior, and that's not wrong, but until we obey him as our king and as our Lord, 
we will always be turning to other things to rule over us. We will believe that he saves us, but we will always turn to other things to be our Lord and to be our ruler, to be our king. We will constantly be enslaved. Get off of his throne. See him for who he is. See him on the throne. Jesus invites us to build our life around him and not ourselves. To find life, to find love, to find peace, to find hope. He calls us in the midst of this culture and this world to be obedient to our king. So do you know who your king really is? Do you know who it is that you serve? Will you be obedient to this king and find peace and life in his name? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for how good you are. It just seems like we can never come close to fully understanding how good you are, how loving you are how great your love is for us. I guess that's why we always are praying for this, why Paul prays that we will continue to grow in our knowledge of how great is your love, because it is exceedingly great. Lord, remind us of that love. Remind us, Lord, of who you are and of what you have done. Lord, we want to have hope. We don't want to have fear. We don't want to be smug and arrogant. We don't want to be disobedient to you. But Lord, we don't want to go through the motions either of religion. Lord, we thank you that you have purchased us. Lord, we thank you that you own us. We, Lord, we thank you that you are loving and good. Lord, strengthen us to act in obedience to you. Lord, strengthen us to give to you the parts of our lives that are difficult and that are hard, the parts that we are very comfortable keeping to ourselves. Lord, help us just to see the folly of that, that there is nothing that is ours, and that there is nothing that is hidden from you. Lord, help us to walk in the light, to live in your kingdom, no matter what it looks like around us. And Lord, help us. Help us to love you and to love each other the way that you love. In your name we pray. Amen.